This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. And today, our topic is dealing with issues related to sexual abuse in the church. It's not a pleasant topic. It's a topic that has come on the radar screen more recently. And we intend in the hour we spend together to help prepare uh, churches and leaders with the responsibilities and awareness of what they need to do to make sure that their children are protected and that their church also is protected from a legal standpoint. So today we have uh, Gregory Love, a lawyer who has worked in this area for some time. Thank you for being with us, Gregory. You're welcome. And Jay Sedwick, who is uh, responsible for teaching in uh, well, it used to be called Christian Education. It now has a new title that I don't even remember. Educational Ministries and Leadership. There you go. <laughs> and uh, works in the in the youth area primarily. And so we've brought these uh, two gentlemen together to help us uh, navigate this topic. Greg, how long have you been practicing law, and more particularly, how long have you been practicing in the area de- dealing with sexual abuse in the church? Well, as you might expect, I didn't go to school desiring to be a sexual abuse lawyer. Mm-hmm. It just I started practicing law in 1990. Probably in about 1995-96, we started working on a matter involving the molestation of probably 20 to 25 children at a group home in Fort Worth. Mm. And the more we kept working on this matter, the larger this kept being. And it finally resolved for resolved for enough money that it got a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And so we started getting calls from people all over the country to take a look at their fact patterns involving the molestation of children in an organization. This corresponded with the Catholic Church starting its adventure into child sexual abuse litigation, which actually started here in Dallas with the Rudy Koss case, and so started getting a lot of calls about representing victims of priest abuse. Now, of course, Kim and I are in church leadership, which meant at that time we made the decision we're not going to be involved in litigating against the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. So what we did instead is made ourselves available to those number of entities ministries, camps, nonprofits, schools, asking for instruction about how do we learn not to place our children at risk before it happens. In other words, how can we learn from Exhibit A so that we don't become Exhibit B? Mm-hmm. So not only were we litigating at that point, then we started moving into trying to help a lot of entities do prevention work. And so, and I take it that this is really was like some. It sounds like they almost stumbled upon it because you took a particular case, and then you realized this is a much bigger need than people even realize. It's, and and it, and it has exploded more recently. Is that not the case? Yeah, it seems like stumbling at the time. Mm-hmm. As I look back. I can see a whole lot more of of God's hand in it Mm -hmm. in preparing me to do large-scale litigation, Mm -hmm. then preparing us on the understanding standards of care and the litigation part. Mm -hmm. But then Kim and I are also in church leadership, and as Jay knows, I'm in my 19th year of student ministry Mm -hmm. at Christ Chapel Bible Church. Mm -hmm. And so with each of those pieces of who I am made us 
I guess, shaped us into being somebody that could communicate specifically with the church. Mm-hmm. So not just, I'm not a social worker. I'm not somebody that I feel like just has good ideas mm-hmm. because I love children. I mean, we're on that edge that I'm going to show you mm-hmm. not only what you should be doing, but I'm going to show you what it's going to look like when this train wrecks. Mm-hmm. And so from those viewpoints and also just being able to speak the language of the Christian church just put us in a unique place to speak truth into the places where it's just not being heard. Well, this is <clears throat> this is interesting because I, you know, I went to seminary in the in the 70s, uh, from 75 to 79, and I can honestly say I don't ever remember a single class dealing with this when I was in seminary, even though I was training to lead the church. The idea of this kind of protection or thinking through this kind of protection as a church leader never came up. Uh, th- these kinds of issues impacting the church uh, really, for me, came through a, an elder role that I had at the church when we started to get the issue of, you know, do we do background checks on, on people working with our children, that kind of thing, along with other issues, not sexual abuse, in which the church was potentially vulnerable for legal action. And now, all of a sudden, uh, I, you know, I have nothing on my seminary training to rely on. Uh, you know, we're trying to, to adjust kind of as we're hearing things, and fortunately, in many cases, most churches have someone in the leadership who has some law or legal background who can at least direct and begin to direct you to someone who, ha- who can give it some attention and has some expertise. Jay, has the situation changed very much for uh, the teaching of this area since when I was in seminary? That's a great question. Um, there are a couple of places where um, – um, rather than just taking credit for it personally, but I have uh, introduced some training in this area. I've invited Greg to come. He's guest lectured for me in our legal and financial issues class. Now, it is an elective mm-hmm. on campus, so it's not a required course on any program. So on a, on a yearly basis in the spring semester, we usually have 10 to 15 students that take the class. Mm-hmm. But that's a very small number of students that get exposed to Greg and the kind of training that Greg provides. The only other place that I'm aware of that we're doing anything is in our CE 101 class, which is our uh, basic course that every student on campus is required to take. And I guest lecture in all of the sections, and I cover this particular topic, um, but just for one session. So they get one shot for about 75 minutes. Um, but every student at least gets that little bit of awareness. But in terms of adequate training, we're not we're not doing what we need to be doing. You know, it's interesting. The reason we're having the podcast is Greg came to do a chapel in uh, earlier in the fall, a packed out room. Uh, got to speak to all the students about this, and I'm sitting here listening to what he's doing and going. Oh man, I can think of dozens and dozens and dozens of church communities that really need to hear uh, what it is uh, you have to share. So I really do appreciate you taking the time to come in and talk with us. And let's just uh, dive right in. Um, You sent me earlier uh, today as we were preparing for this uh, an outline of a case that I take to be kind of a sample of the mess a church can get into. Um, so why don't you walk us through uh, that uh, that case a- as a sample of the types of things leaders do need to be concerned about? Okay. Well, I break down <clears throat> most of the ways in which the church gets into the deep end of the pool mm-hmm. into two large categories. One is what do you do to get prepared? Mm-hmm. What systems do you have in place recognizing the risk and, and addressing it? Mm-hmm. And then a separate category on how do you respond 
once one of these things comes above the surface. Okay, you can get into some serious difficulties on both sides of that, and usually if you're an error on the first part of it, generally the errors are going to just, you know, they're going to just roll on so the this, second the set. So the point is this can really happen, and a church can be put in an extremely vulnerable position if they haven't adequately uh, prepared themselves for the possibility of this taking place. That's right, and most churches aren't. Yeah, that's the assumption I'm operating with as well. <laughs> um, let's let's start off by by sh by showing what can happen to a church, and then we'll talk about the ways to remedy it. Um, you have sent me this case involving a church in Colorado. That's all I'll say about it. Um, let's go through the rough outlines of of what happened and how the church got itself into into deep water. Okay, in this particular situation. We have a youth pastor mm -hmm. that is alleged to have engaged in inappropriate physical behavior mm -hmm. with a 15, 14, 15-year-old 15 girl, mm -hmm. and it went on for a, a long period of time. Okay. And there was also behaviors that if, if somebody understands the grooming process mm -hmm. of a sexual abuser, mm -hmm. you can really read between the lines mm -hmm. on some of the things that are being reported mm -hmm. that it really seems to me that this person was grooming this girl for inappropriate sexual behavior and did engage in some of that behavior. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, that girl left the congregation, mm -hmm. confided with some other people in another church about what her experience has been, mm -hmm. because in our climate today, people are more comfortable sharing than they have been in the past, especially a female. Okay. They encouraged her to go back to the leadership of the first church and share with them what had happened because that person was still on staff, I see. the offending youth pastor. Mm -hmm. The church received that information and see, that's in my opinion, you're, you're standing at a crossroad at mm -hmm. that point. And there's a number of different things that should happen at that point. Mm -hmm. Sharing the information with the authorities, if it fits within what the authorities want to be reported. Mm -hmm. Notifying your insurance carrier, mm -hmm. notifying other potentially impacted individuals. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just had some due diligence of what is necessary at that point. Okay. The first thing I mentioned was your reporting responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Now, every state in the country is going to have law in place that makes some people mandatory reporters of sexual abuse, physical abuse, or neglect. Mm -hmm. And then some people are, we'd like for you to report. Mm -hmm. In Colorado, their code section makes clergy mandatory reporters. Mm -hmm. You know, they carve out a clergy privilege, but it makes it very narrow. Mm -hmm. So in this situation, they received the information from the girl who was then 23, mm -hmm. and she was no longer in harm's way. Mm -hmm. And they, I think, even sought legal advice, mm -hmm. not necessarily mm -hmm. good advice. advice <laughs> yeah. And they decided not to report that information to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And they actually went through a process of an internal investigation to mm -hmm. determine it, did this person actually do this, you know, and is there mm -hmm. any other victims, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That young lady ultimately told the authorities four or five months later, and there's also civil litigation that began, mm -hmm. but ultimately when the authorities learned that they had, she had notified church leadership six months earlier, mm -hmm. and nobody from the church contacted the authorities, mm -hmm. They went and actually not just came and said, we're disappointed with you. Mm -hmm. They arrested two elders and three pastors at that church in connection with the 
failure to report if you're a mandatory reporter, which is a Class B misdemeanor or some level of misdemeanor offense, mm-hmm. and that's just is going to unfold poorly. Mm-hmm. So at that point, when they got that information, they determined this is not something we're going to report to the authorities, and they didn't. And it had consequences. So both the past, in one sense, the leadership, which involves both the pastor and elders, are responsible when a situation comes up in many states um, to report this. And failure to report is a violation of the law. That's right. Um, so, uh, which which is interesting because you have you have the act on the one hand, which precipitates all this, and then you have the response to the act, which itself puts you in a vulnerable position as well, so that uh, so that you may think all you have to deal with is dealing with the act, but actually there's a whole responsibility that comes as a result of the act and knowing about it that you also have responsibility for. That's right. So it's, it's important for a church to think through these things in advance to put your systems in place that are going to protect the children, but also educate your people as to understanding who needs to get information that does come to your attention. In other words, we want to be communicating before someone's nude with a child. Right, right. We want you to understand what some of those grooming behaviors are, know who to share that information with, and leadership to have already thought through, when we receive this information, what do we do with it? Now, you could have that system in place and still have an allegation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could still have something that can arise that – and then you ultimately need to respond to it. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not doing it well on this first section, mm-hmm. chances are you're not going to do it well. Because you're going to be reacting. <laughs> because you don't, have any, you don't have any understanding what yeah. the risk looks like. Right. And what this is something you don't wing it yeah. and make these decisions. You hopefully have thought through it such that when it hits your radar, it's already got a clear instruction as to what needs to happen with that information. Okay. Now, my guess is is that <clears throat> the churches that have given this at least a little bit of thought have probably uh, set some policies in place, and they probably do a standard background check. And I think one of the things that hit us during the chapel was um, that that kind of standard operating procedure, which I think you've nicknamed the American way, uh, which is a great name, by the way, um, uh, isn't good enough. So um, why, don't you, why don't you go through what most churches do first, and then secondly, why that's not good enough? Okay. And part of the way I know what churches do mm-hmm. <clears throat> is I do a lot of prevention work. I also do a lot of consulting. So when there's an allegation or when there's a train that's hopped the tracks, I'm going to come alongside leadership and try to help them evaluate what went wrong and how wrong is it. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I'm going to be able to ask them for the information I need to potentially defend them, Mm -hmm. create media talking points Mm -hmm. to help them work with families that have victimized children. Mm -hmm. Just So in a number of different ways, have the opportunity to ask people, what are you doing Mm -hmm. in your church, your school, your camp to protect children from abuse? And like you mentioned, the standard answer I'm going to get is we do criminal background checks. Mm-hmm. We have policies, mm-hmm. which could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Right. And they just they just move forward. But what they don't understand is what the grooming process looks like of a sexual abuser. Mm-hmm. And so when you get down into understanding the effectiveness of those two pieces, policies and a criminal background check – you start to realize I'm really doing very little, if anything, to protect the children in my care. 
First of all, because less than 10% of sexual abusers will ever encounter the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. okay, which means even if your background check is working at 100% efficiency, which I promise you it's not, mm-hmm. then more than 90% of those people that wish to hurt our children have nothing for you to find. So there's no real sieve going – there's no real sieve operating in a background check. Well, I've got to make sure that I don't – Air the other way right. in sharing with people that, okay, this don't bother then. Yeah. Because if there's low-hanging fruit, we uh-huh. have to pick it. If it's right. out there, we have to make a reasonable you know, reach for it. Mm-hmm. But what we need to do is make sure we understand the limitation of the criminal background check and not let that be a standalone system. So it's not enough is the point that you're making. Right. You need to do it, but it's not enough. Right. And, the, and one of the reasons you need to do it is is that you do need to show that you've made some effort as a community to deal with this should you ever f- come into the situation. You're, you're, you're more exposed, if you will, if you've done nothing than if you've at least tried to do something. Is that fair? Right. What our community wants is the same thing our jury wants, mm-hmm. is to know that you were reasonable. Mm-hmm. Okay, Given your circumstances, did you do what was reasonable? Mm-hmm. And a criminal background check it's starting to be revealed by itself is not enough. Mm-hmm. And we have a situation in Florida where a a Baptist, you know, the Baptist convention mm-hmm. helped a church, a supporting church and a supporting association plant a church on the coast, mm-hmm. not knowing that this person that they trained and financed to help plant this church had lost two pulpits, one in Maryland and one in Alabama, prior for sexual abuse of boys. Oh wow. When he got down to that church, he ultimately sexually abused the church secretary's son. And, of course, their defense was, we ran a criminal background check and there was nothing. But what they didn't do was the next step to check the references at the prior places where he had served where they would have revealed to them that there were children that were abused. Okay, so now my point in sharing that with Mm -hmm. you is – we're looking for what is reasonable. Mm-hmm. Okay, now reasonable is also associated in the law with called standard of care. Okay, and what is reasonable in 1975 mm-hmm. is different than what's reasonable today. Mm-hmm. What is going to be reasonable 10 years from now is going to change yet again. Sometimes that's driven by legislation, licensure, different other things like litigation. So in this sense, when you talk about background checks. We have to do it Mm -hmm. because it's reasonable to do it, Mm -hmm. and we have to make a reasonable search for that information. Now, some of even our licensures for our churches that have daycare centers, Mm -hmm. things like that, is required. That's right. Okay? So the youth camps required, and it will continue to be required, but what we're seeing is there's a limitation to it. What juries are going to start to ask, like the jury in Florida, is what else should you have done? that would have been reasonable for you to determine whether this person was a high risk. Mm-hmm. Okay? And even some of the feedback from the lawyers for the you know, Florida Baptist Convention where this is brand new law, but actually, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's application of existing law. Just the culture is changing and is expecting more from us. So the standards in one sense have risen because of all the cases that have come up in the past. And so the old approaches in some ways are, are viewed as inadequate. It's just not enough. And what our culture and our experts are starting to understand is there are limitations to the criminal background check, which is why in Texas we've seen a lot of changes in the law that's requiring sexual abuse awareness training. Mm -hmm. And that, in my opinion, is the key. Mm -hmm. So in other words, we have to teach people what this risk looks like or how are you going to reduce that risk? 
So if you tell me we've got policies and procedures, well, are your policies and procedures based upon the grooming process of a preferential offender? Mm-hmm. Because if they're not, what are you policying? Mm-hmm. What, what are you doing? What are you teaching your people to see? Because if you don't give them the eyes to see and ears to hear that which is risky, and if you don't understand what those things are so you can say in your policies and procedures what behavior is and is not appropriate amongst the children, then you really haven't accomplished anything, and you have your people moving blithely forward thinking everything is fine while sexual abusers are moving in your community because you can't recognize them. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Okay, I'm going to come back to this, but I want to ask Jay a question, and it's this. Now, how should a church not approach the development of this awareness training? I think you have some experience in this regard to share with us. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm familiar with a church that um, was taking their um, leadership to a camp for their children, and the uh, the children's minister took the leadership through the training process. And this was required by law. They it's had required by it. law in the state of Texas. Yeah. If you're going to be an adult leader, at even a, even a teenager who's a leader at that particular camp, at any camp in the state of Texas, you are required by law to go through sexual abuse awareness training. And that's unusual training. in the country. That there are probably lots of states that have those laws. There are states that are evaluating what Texas is doing mm-hmm. for similar implementation, but right now Texas is first. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And um, I felt like it was very inadequate because the the children's minister. Uh, would basically coach the leadership through the test and hint at the answers to the questions as we went through it as a group. And um, so it was really not effective at all. There was nothing, no material was really read or studied. It was simply something that was perfunctory that had to be done to check off a list so that we could people could go to the camp. And so the worst thing that you can do is to have one of these awareness programs and simply go through it to be able to say, oh, I checked it off on the list. And particularly if you give that attitude off as you're doing it, I mean, it's even even worse. And I would take it that if that if that were discovered in a, in a court case, that that would put you in a very vulnerable and terrible position, correct? Well, it, it would put you in a vulnerable position, yes, but in a court case, as a plaintiff's lawyer, uh-huh. one of my jobs is to make a jury angry. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to. I need to. I'm going to represent a victim of abuse, mm-hmm. and I'm going to try to demonstrate that here's what the standards of care were. Mm-hmm. Here's where you were operating. Mm-hmm. And if a jury, in seeing the totality of those circumstances, sees an entity that's either ignoring what's reasonable, or making light of it. Mm-hmm dealing with it as if it's perfunctory or mm-hmm. if it's just a we just need to touch this base and and with frivolity mm-hmm. i know that what work i do i can make a jury angry and mm-hmm. that translates into destroying missions mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so this is serious, serious business that we're talking about. Let's let's uh, let's turn to the awareness programs. What what's what's out there? If a, if a church were to come to you and just say on a consulting basis, recommendation basis, what should we do? What's 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 reasonable for us to do, given that that's the standard that you've talked about? Um, what what kinds of things would you say to them? They need to be be doing. Well, I'm going to tell them that anybody who's delivering services to children, mm-hmm. churches included, need to understand there's risk. You just need to understand there are people out there, and it makes no sense to me, mm-hmm. that though they may have an age-appropriate adult willing to have sex with them, mm-hmm. they prefer a child as a sexual partner. That just mm-hmm. makes no sense to me. But with that understanding, you need to put in place a system that's going to protect children from that risk. Mm-hmm. And it can't be just a one-piece system like a criminal background check. It Mm -hmm. needs to be multiple things that work together to create a reasonable environment that's safe for a child. And in my opinion, that includes five things. Your Your foundation is your sexual abuse awareness training. It informs and provides support for every other piece in this system. So your sexual abuse awareness training is first. And that is the, the goal of that is to make all the people who work with children, I take it, aware of, of the circumstances that could be turning in that direction. Is that, is that the, one of the primary goals of it, is to, is to sensitize people as to what might be going on? Yeah, it's got sensitizing for a number of different reasons. Mm-hmm. For example, leadership is going to be the group that's responsible for creating policies and procedures. Right. They need to understand the behavior. See, there's no visual profile for the preferential sexual offender. Mm-hmm. You must recognize that risk behaviorally, mm-hmm. not visually, not mm-hmm. the stranger danger, not the trench coat and the beanie babies. Yeah. So it's teaching people what are those behaviors, what does that risk look like, so that leadership can reasonably create the policies that would be necessary to have in place to protect the children that fit your particular mission. Mm-hmm. So a policy and procedure document, understanding the behaviors of the preferential offender for a school, mm-hmm. is going to have some same core commonalities as the policy for a church mm-hmm. and a camp, but it's going to be shaped to actually fit the types of programming that are delivered in each one of those types of entities. Mm-hmm. So a camp may have overnight elements. Mm-hmm. A school might have an athletics element. Church may have a domestic and foreign missions component. But it all has as its core the understanding of the behavior of the preferential sexual offender. And, and what I'm also hearing you say <clears throat> is that this training isn't just something that involves the people who are actually working with the children. It's got to involve the leadership as well. Right. It has to start with leadership. Mm-hmm. Because even if you train these people that are wearing your name tag as mm-hmm. paid staff and even volunteers, mm-hmm. they still operate within the framework that leadership creates. Mm-hmm. So leadership has the added responsibility of having this information such that they can create the grid in which everybody operates in safely and reasonably. And so that's the sensitization of the people that wear your name tag, that you want them to have the information so that when you give people policies and procedures, they can read these and understand exactly why each one of these things in here of the things that I do or don't do are in place. And that way you don't have those group of people that are resisting change Mm -hmm. or new rules you have people, once they understand what this risk looks like, mm-hmm. and arguably, if you have a kid in the program, 
I want to know mm-hmm. what's going to keep my kids safe. Yeah, virtually every mother will want to be mm-hmm. sure that their child is, fa- hey, is safe, not to mention out. the father. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But so the awareness training equips leadership to put policies in place. Mm-hmm. Then it equips your people that are actually going to be the hands and feet of your delivery of services to operate within a child-safe environment. And so it's got multiple purposes but it's, if you don't have that information, you can't do either one of these. So one mistake that a church can make is, oh, we'll put in a training awareness program, but the people that we're going to train and have be aware are just the people who are working with the kids. That's a mistake. That is a mistake, but that's where I would start. Uh-huh. I mean, because for most of my people, what I would tell them, if they wear your name tag, mm-hmm. then we need to provide this training. In fact, we need to require it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so there's training that's involved with leadership. There's also training that involves the people who are actually with with the children. So there really are two levels that we're talking about here. Am I, is there is there another grouping, or are those the two groups that you're primarily working with? Your leadership and the people who are actually with the with the children. I mean, I'm assuming leadership involves your elders and your and your staff as a whole. That 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 there should be no exclusions in who. And who is who gets this training at the leadership level? That's my lawyer answer. Okay. <laughs> and then there's my this is a good idea answer. Okay. So that that's what I would consider reasonable. Mm-hmm. And then what I'd also share with my people, like many of my organizations, like I'm leaving for Bob Jones University mm-hmm. this evening, because they've made the decision they want to provide this training live from me and my wife, mm-hmm. my law partner. Mm-hmm. You know, for every one of their faculty members and students, mm-hmm. okay, not seminary. I mean, all of their undergraduate and postgraduate students. Mm. Why? Because they see themselves as an organization that's going to reach out into their community. Right. And if you're going to be associated with us, we don't just want to be sure to you know, protect ourselves from liability. We just think that you're going to be moving into a broken environment that could place you at risk. Mm-hmm. We just want you to have some wisdom. So that entity. I don't think it's standard of care that they'd be required mm-hmm. to do that, but I think it's a great idea, and they do too. Mm-hmm. For some of my churches, they've decided, well, why do we want to limit this to just the people that wear our name tag? Can we also provide this to our parents? Now, I'm thinking about a delivery, whether mm-hmm. it's live or online. Mm-hmm. It's like, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. You know, This is an opportunity for a church or a camp or a school just to say, people, we don't want there to be any mystery here. Mm-hmm. We want to really turn on the light, and we want you to invite parents into what we're sharing with our staff. We want you to know what our policies and procedures are. We want you to partner with us. And if you see anything that we need to know about, we want you as a part of our church body to participate in that with us. So they'll send training links to all of the parents associated with the program. So that's actually a third group in some ways, right? Right. Now, it's not required. It's not the lawyer's standard of care. Right. But you can... I mean, when you understand some of the statistics, mm-hmm. one in five Americans has been sexually victimized before she or he or she was 18 years old, okay? Mm-hmm. One out of five, which means, in my opinion, that everybody that's a part of your program that's an adult has either been victimized, is married to somebody who's been victimized, or as somebody close to them that's been victimized. So you generally don't have a group that's receiving this that's mm-hmm. apathetic or hostile, mm-hmm. Because we're not talking about it, I just want my people to assume this is information that somebody that's either been impacted by this personally or very close to them would feel like this is valuable. Hmm. And I respect that entity giving it to me and raising the bar because they recognize this risk.
Okay, so we've we've now identified three potential groups: uh, leadership, the participants in the program themselves, people who are with the kids, and the parents. Um, what what does this training actually involve? What types of things should it cover? What it covers as it relates to being compliant with Texas law, and and I'm. I didn't have a hand in, mm-hmm. in creating the legislation in Texas, mm-hmm. and when it came out in 2006, it didn't come with a lot of announcement and fanfare, mm-hmm. but when we got this, it's like, this is this is really well done. Mm. And for example, to be compliant with the, you know, to be a state-approved training in the state of Texas, mm-hmm. it requires like eight particular topics, and some of those topics are, for example, what is the grooming process? Mm-hmm. What are common grooming behaviors? Mm-hmm. What are the characteristics of an abuser? Mm-hmm. What are some of the signs in a child that this child may have been victimized? What are the short-term impacts and what are the long-term impacts? Mm-hmm. What are the significance you know, of the requirements to report, not just to supervisors, but to law enforcement? So, But the core of any sexual abuse awareness training has to be what is the grooming process, and what are common grooming behaviors? Now, you mentioned the state of Texas, and you also have suggested in some areas Texas has taken the lead in these kinds of, uh, of laws. Are, is this kind of training, requirement of this kind of training, uh, common now across the country? Is it becoming more common? What's the status of where it sits before we actually take a look at what's involved in the, within the material itself? Here's kind of if you could get up and see like the weather patterns. Yeah. Here's how that change is occurring. Texas was first, mm-hmm. and which is interesting because Texas is rarely first mm-hmm. in doing you know things <laughs> yeah. like this. Right. You know, but it was, and it was well done, and it was well written, mm-hmm. and that was a requirement for mandatory sexual abuse awareness training, as Jay mentioned, for those people who are going to be adults participating or even teenagers participating in leadership at youth camps in Texas. Mm-hmm. But it also described as a requirement for day camps as well. Mm-hmm. And day camps is intentionally very broad in mm-hmm. its definition, so that anytime you gather at least five children for four consecutive days between the hours of 7 a.m. and 10 p.m. for the purposes of education, athletics, recreation, or religion, you know, they would call you a day camp. Does vacation right? Bible school? That is describing that? a vacation Bible school. Now, there's nothing in the code section that says vacation Bible schools need to go get licensed as day camps. Mm-hmm. But what I would share with my churches is what the state of Texas has done is gathered experts in sexual abuse and children's programming, and they have opined that if you are gathering children in this type of way, there's a heightened risk of sexual abuse. And I agree. And to reduce that heightened risk, it's reasonable for you to have an administrator that has a background in child care, criminal background checks, and mandatory sexual abuse awareness training. All right, so I'm not telling my people the law says to go get licensed as a daycare or a, a day camp, but what I am telling you is you've had the experts in your state tell you when you engage in these types of activities, there's heightened risk. This is how you reduce the risk. So, you know. Use that information and go move forward. Right. So, so a lot of churches also do daycare. So, I take it daycare also fits in in this or in a similar kind of way. So, if a church has a daycare program that they offer, they are under similar kinds of requirements in terms of what is what they're asked to to do uh, to protect children. 
I'd say up until 2011, it was me being persuasive to tell you I think this is what it's telling you and this is a good idea. Mm -hmm. But see, in 2011, we had multiple pieces of legislation make additional changes in the state of Texas. So now there's a requirement of a sexual abuse awareness training by virtue of two pieces of legislation for daycare centers specifically, child placing agencies, public schools, charter schools, and colleges and universities that deliver minors programs on campus. Hmm. So they tried to hook gymnastics gyms Mm -hmm. as a daycare center, but that didn't work. Hmm. So, and I think it's coming. Yeah. Hmm. So the only large unregulated areas in the state of Texas that you can work with youth and not have a required sexual abuse awareness training is youth sports, gymnastics, and youth ministry. Interesting. And I think those are coming. Okay, now there's the the end of Sister Cleo mm-hmm. on Texas. But you see what has happened is take the the Boy Scouts of America. Mm-hmm. They have scout troops in Texas. There's now a mandatory requirement for this sexual abuse awareness training if you're engaged in this behavior in Texas. What they understand is it's kind of silly to say, well, we're going to protect our Texas children, but our children in Kansas, nah. So what they've decided is, okay, well, that's a change in the watermark. We're going to change it across the country. Hmm. Now, they've they've endured a lot of litigation Mm -hmm. as well, so they've got zero margin for error Mm -hmm. and should be taking no for anything Mm -hmm. that they need to be doing, which is reasonable. Mm -hmm. Catholic Church, same thing. Mm -hmm. They raise the fences nationally. And not just in Texas. So what's happening is, is some organizations are ahead of where the laws are in certain states because they recognize the risks that they that they are operating under. Because the message doesn't just come from the legislatures. Mm-hmm. The message is also coming from insurance companies. Mm-hmm. So like nobody passed a law that outlined outlawed 15-seater vans. Mm-hmm. But you see the people that were paying for that risk decided – we're through paying for that risk. Mm-hmm. And so insurance companies started excluding coverage for particular types of vehicles or vehicles that didn't have drivers taking a particular training. So what we're seeing now more is insurance companies requiring the mandata- mandatory sexual abuse awareness training and certain policy provisions and levels of criminal background check before they'll renew coverage mm. because they are your professional risk management voice. Mm -hmm. So whether it's coming through insurance companies, the legislature, licensing bodies, or just organizations that have a national presence like the the Council for the Boy Scouts of America Mm -hmm. or the the YMCAs, Mm -hmm. you know, making a national decision, this is what we're going to do. So you can see that as that culture changes and the watermark is coming up, the church really doesn't have that voice. Mm-hmm. And so you can, shouldn't go into this with the view that says, uh, what's the least we can do? You really are wise to think through what makes sense to do. What's, what's the, in some cases, even what's the best you can do um, to make sure that, you're, that you've adequately taken care of this. Join us next week for part two of The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more 
who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.